This is Pickups, the podcast where we go back and unravel the greatest movies of all time, talk all things filmmaking. We are your host, Shawnee H. Jones, Zachy R. Sherman, and I'm John Michael Powell. This is episode three, Mystery Train. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Today we're going to be tackling Jim Jarmusch's 1989 love letter to Memphis, Tennessee. It stars... Masatoshi Nagase, Yuki Kudo, Screamin' Jay Hawkins, Cinque Lee, Nicoletta Braski, Elizabeth Bracco, Joe Strummer, Rick Aviles, Steve Buscemi, a lovely Tom Newman moment. And of course, yes. it wouldn't be uh, a, jo- a Jim Jarmusch movie without Tom Waits. So, uh, you know, Mystery Train has everything. I-, I wrote down here, if you're a fan of Japanese rockabilly, Elvis, CD Motels, Anton Chekhov references, overlapping narratives, or you're just a fan of stealing plums. <laughs> this just might be the episode for you. Before we get there, let's see what's uh, going on in the world of movies. Let's talk about film news. Uh, but you guys, you have nothing because you did no homework. I did You not. lazy bums. Yep. You lazy, lazy, bums. lazy. Let, lazy. Yeah, yeah. Let me pick up the goddamn slack around here. Mm-hmm. Okay, so <laughs> the first thing I kind of want to talk about with, there was this story in the news kind of last week that was running around uh Olivia Wilde and Emerald uh, Fennell, uh, who I think everyone here knows who Olivia Wilde is. Emerald Fennell directed Promising Young Woman, which is out with uh, with uh, Carrie Mulligan. Carrie Mulligan. Carrie Mulligan. Uh, everybody should, I think, should go see that. I honestly haven't seen it, and I feel bad because. Oh, I haven't heard about it. I want to see it, Mulligan. You haven't heard about it? It was at Sundance. No. Got a lot okay. of got a lot of press uh, out of Sundance, and I, it's getting really positive re- reviews. I feel mm. bad. Emerald is um, a mutual friend th- through a lot of. I have a big uh, English expats out oh, here. Oh no who, way! Oh yeah, yeah. Emerald is uh, really good friends with uh, with a bunch of the people that I'm, I'm really close friends with from England. And and I don't, Sean. Did you not know that Anthony Willis scored "Promising Young Woman"? Holy shit! Yeah. So and that's our, our composer. He composed yeah, "Shit You Not." Anth- yeah. Anthony, who's one of my best friends, he composed my short film "Shit You Not" that Sean starred in. Mm. And Anthony composed the score for Emerald on "Promising Young Woman." He's so good. He's so good. I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but I'm going to say it. But Anthony is shortlisted for a BAFTA for this whoa yeah so uh go anthony willis go emerald they're they're awesome but really what i wanted to kind of talk about was olivia wilde and emerald did a interview together where they it was for variety and they talked about a myriad of things but the thing that i really wanted to single out was kind of they both discussed being working with assholes on set and i don't know if you guys know but it was in the trades this week or in the news this week that olivia wilde got got rid of shia labeouf from her movie shia's yeah going through uh Yet another Shia Rowe where he... Ah, poor uh, guy. You just, sometimes you just got to stop. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're all fans of, of his performances. Absolutely. He's an amazing actor. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, but, he, but you know, Wilde got rid of him because she didn't want to suffer assholes. And I, I, it's something I really respect. And I respect Olivia Wilde for this. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's something I want to single out in the article. She says, this is Olivia, quote, Someone who's a very established actor and director in this industry gave me really terrible advice that was helpful because I just knew I had to do the opposite. They said, listen, the way to get respect on a set, you have to have three arguments a day, three big arguments that reinstate your power, remind everyone who's in charge, be the predator. That is the opposite, Olivia says, of my process. And I want none of that. 
Man. So that yeah. quote to me was really interesting. And, and, and I, I guess I wanted to talk about, uh, obviously there's a big conversation here, but I, you guys are actors. Mm-hmm. I, I, I come at it from a, from a different side, like editing and directing and writing. So we have two very different kind of perspectives. Have you guys ever been on sets as an actor with assholes like th- like this t- person, this type of predator that uh, that uh, Olivia Wilde is is mentioning? I I don't remember specific incidents, but I but it's part of this business that you know I I jumped into 15 years ago where that was the mo. I think that it's like it's power. It's a, it's a pyramid and there's always the guy on the top. And a lot of times that guy's an asshole, but I think that's changing. Um, I, I haven't had it directly, but I know the, or I can't remember specifics, but I, but I fucking know that vibe. It's so, it's so awful. Sean, have you had any, I, I wish I, had uh, I, specific. I, the, no, I don't have it directly. The closest I have is something I, I just acted in the director and the DP clashed in a way that I think was I think was borderline unprofessional um, just because it bled over into the actors becoming a little aware of it uh, and then actually yes I'm primarily an actor but when when I directed one of my shorts um, I, you know I, I completely agree with Olivia and I know I only have the experience of two short films but something that I ex- had to go through to learn that I prefer, which is what she's talking about, is, you know, I want everybody on set to feel good and to be, right. you know, high morale and and be loving what we're doing. So, you know, I, I am I like to think of myself as a personable kind of guy and I, I tried to keep it that way. Uh, it's on... got to be the only way to work. Yeah, yeah, be. no, totally. But I, but I was dealing with, you know, this is what I, what I was getting to is, is I was dealing with a DP who I think is 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 one of those um, type of people that really would prefer to be a director, but they just ended up being stuck or or mm-hmm. or or wound up, you know, they just ended up being a DP, but. But I don't know. I kind of, what I what I got from him was kind of like you need to be captain of the ship and you need to you know. But I didn't want to do that because I think there's a way to be the captain and also be yeah. on the same level with everybody because you're making it together. You know. So I it's it's weird. I kind of experienced that, from, you know, from from the DP's advice, which I ultimately didn't agree with. Yeah, I think this this white man system that we that has been slowly been spotlighted and is breaking apart we're realizing that it's no longer valuable to swing your dick around you know and that's what i think that statement is let's let's be as big as we can let's be as scary as we can because that's powerful and how opposite from the truth is that and olivia's so wonderful to make this mainstream news even though it already is but Sean, you're absolutely right. You can't make well. You can make a movie with a dictator in 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 charge. Uh, but they, never... by the way, there have been many many instances of dictators who have made great movies over the years. As you said, Zach, it's that's been the system that we've, we've right. existed in for a long, long time. And there have been a lot of great movies made. Kubrick is is comes to mind, where like you know Kubrick is notorious for, you know, just giving uh, you know Duvall, putting her through hell. 
on uh, on The Shining, and, and and it's well noted, and you can you can read about it. And I'm a huge don't get me wrong, I'm a huge Kubrick fan. I love his work. We start to get into this conversation of separating the art from the human and the mm. person from the, the maker from the thing that is made. Plenty of people have talked about, you know, where the divide line between uh, asshole and great artists should be made. I, I, I agree with you guys. I, I, I think the spotlight has been shown on this, and I, I'm, I'm really glad Olivia Wilde brought it up. And it seems like a no-brainer for us. Right. Like, I, I yeah. feel like be we are— Be human first. Yeah. Be human first. And, and I do—maybe I'm giving our generation too much credit, but I feel like we're the generation of filmmakers who just— didn't come up with this mentality at all. Like right. we didn't come up traditionally through the system where right. you start as like a, a mail clerk and then power play your way up. Right. To and we a- look up to, we look up to Harvey Weinstein and we look up to these movies that, what about that boondock Saint guy, that oh, yeah, movie? Yeah. Did you see that documentary? What's sure, that called? Sure. It's a great documentary. I yeah. can't remember, but it's about the guy who directed boondock Saints. He was a bouncer at a club. And it's his, his macho introduction into Hollywood. I'm Mr. Big Shit and I'm the biggest guy in town and here I come and I'm the new thing. And it, it's, it's all of this. And, and we're seeing the death of it now, hopefully. And I, mean, I, I do think in this quote, in this Olivia Wilde quote, that, you know, this idea of reinstating your pi- power and reminding everyone who is in charge, beneath that is important. It, you, there has to be someone in charge oh, on yeah. the set. But... But you can act with love and you can act with kindness. And the good directors do that. I mean, you're, you're backwards to, to make it a power play, to make it about pushing people around. You're only going to get better work when you are working from generosity and openness. And that's how, that's how Sarah and I hire our, our crews. And it's the only way to make, to have a good environment, to have a good community. You know, you have to have kind people who are all on the same, on, on the same level. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and my last thought on this and my last hope is that this conversation that Olivia is bringing up will help put an yeah. end to this stupid type right. of type of behavior and this t- stupid type of power structure. Yeah. Put these people even if in their place, even if they're at the top. Yeah, that's right. Uh, something else I wanted to talk about with, and I know you guys haven't really seen the movie Malcolm and Marie yet, but Malcolm and Marie is, uh, you know, a black and white film uh, that, uh, Sam Levinson, Barry Levinson's son. Oh, I'll talk uh, about nepotism. I'll talk about nepotism well, th- this all day. Isn't, this isn't a conversation, and, and we can talk about nepotism, but this wasn't <laughs> meant to be a, co- a conversation mm-hmm. about nepotism. Um, and it's the film has created a lot of controversy because, I mean, there's a lot of, re- I mean, the movie got mixed reviews, and none of us have seen it here, so I don't think we're, he- I'm not certainly not wanting to comment on the movie itself. But I read this really great article in The Independent uh, by Misha Fraser Carroll, and she was discussing the backlash of the movie. And there's a, there's a particular quote that I wanted to talk about. Um, I think it's really interesting. And she said, race only complicates uh, this problem. She's discussing, discussing the discrepancies with the film. She says, Levinson is white, and notably the son of Hollywood legendary uh, legend Barry Levinson, who directed the box office success Rain Man. Yet there are many moments where it feels as if Malcolm, who is a black Hollywood director, serves as a mouthpiece for Levinson's own opinions on race and filmmaking, making them harder to disagree with. Right. So th- there, therein lies the question, and something I wanted to discuss was just like, is it fair for Sam Levinson... You know, he's he's got a black character spending the entirety of the film complaining about reviews from critics as kind of a buffer. Is is there a responsibility for the filmmaker, especially a white filmmaker like Sam Levinson, 
to do a better job of making his his characters, if they are black, feel individual and to feel as if they are representing the character and that character's types of experiences versus a white character's experiences. Do you know what I, I think mean? This is a, this I, is a tough yeah. conversation. I think it's definitely important to have as much education and depth in anti-racist work and understanding the plight of somebody that's that the, uh, the black experience that we know nothing about. Sure, if you're going to write a character, you should educate your fucking self and get inside out. But with that said, like, it gets murky. This whole fucking thing is murky because I imagine Washington, the actor, I bet he wouldn't agree with this stuff. He signed on to do it. He said these words from his mouth. You know, this stuff can be so hot and criticized and this one journalist's view that we've read it's only to be one fair, it, to be fair it's to be fair it's not one a lot of people okay. are coming out it's it's that's why i brought this up because it's kind of steamrolled yeah. into a big topic of of a lot of people are really frustrated with this film and the way it presents sure and i look I, I think the topic of race and what black characters should say is not for us to talk about yeah, um, we are a, we are three white males. So like that is not really what I'm interested in in this conversation, because that is that is not for us to say that is that is for, you know, black people to talk about their experience and what 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 that should be. I want to know what's so inflammatory uh, aside from what we're saying that's scaring so many people, you know, and I'm because there is there is like there's got to be some artistic genesis in this dude that's coming from a place that he's compelled to share. And I'm not defending it. I haven't seen it, but I am curious to like what degree he's set this fire. And and I also think people are kind of, you know, I, I don't know. I'm going to support people like vomiting up their guts no matter what, whether you're criticizing the film industry and your experience or not. And that's pretentious, like well done for putting it on the page and not just doing another fucking Marvel movie. Yeah, that's fair. I agree with that. I just think it's a really tough line. And I think we need to watch the movie before we start talking yeah, like right. assholes about it. Right. But <laughs> It's tough when you make a black and white movie in a, it, by the way, wrote this during the George Floyd situation wow. so you're making a black and white movie about two black filmmakers and you're a, a white filmmaker it's a tough thing to make without getting any cri- critical backlash and, and and i almost feel like maybe levinson did himself a disservice because it's like if you did have something really interesting to say about art and critique it's it's by putting zendaya and 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 um john david washington in the film Right. You almost didn't even allow people to get past the ob- object of, of of the zeitgeist of the day to even see what what your film was about. So it maybe did himself a little disservice. And, and within that, there prob- maybe there is a great little film. And seeing a film like this get so much backlash, uh, I, I, I just wonder, and we probably don't have the answers. I know we don't have the answers. But where the line is and where the responsibility is on the director right. and the filmmaker to cut through the zeitgeist and make something that's personal... Yeah, I think you're right. It's you got to if you're going to you should start from somewhere pure rather than capitalizing on the moment of the time and using that to your benefit for sure. Um, if you want to see a great movie on filmmaking, uh, Living in Oblivion, 1995. Oh, so, good much call out. so much. Good fun. call out. Good call out. Steve Buscemi, so funny. in fact, oh, yeah. Yeah. by the way, who is in Mystery Train, which we're going to be talking about today. But uh, yeah. Living in Oblivion is a great one. But yeah. I'm curious what you guys think. And we can wrap this up. But. 
I am very wary of criticals in the last 10, of, of, of what am I trying to say? Reviews, critics. And, and, yeah, reviews. and critics. I, I, rare, I don't read reviews before I go and see a movie. I like to go in blind. And the whole critical world is always a big turnoff for me. Um, I rarely read them, even after I love a movie. I, I'm just not interested in it. Um, and I guess that I wonder if, if that's along the lines of what uh, Levinson is is getting at. I think his is a little probably more bitter and personal, but, you know, having just released a small movie this last week, like there's, you know, 98 reviews online and a lot of people hate it. But like, all I can say is like, I've learned and I want to continue is like, ignore what everybody else is saying and just do what I do. And, and I guess maybe doing what I do would then become what, what this guy has done and making a movie saying, fuck you, you've ruined my life. But like, I, yeah, and I, I it's, agree. It's a dangerous you. world. It's weird. I think when, as a filmmaker, at a certain point, you have to mature into a place where you realize that what you make mm. is is not manna from the gods. <laughs> you are making a movie. Anything you create is open for people's critiquing. Sure. And at a sure certain is. point, you have to let go. Yep. of the thing you create and acknowledge that you've made that thing to let it go into the world to be critiqued. Yeah. Also, Sam Levinson has to realize that like it's not for you to decide what is important about yeah. that movie and what isn't. And right. I know he's probably frustrated because he feels like people didn't fully get what he was trying to do. And I think he's... I, I sympathize because I'm sure Sam had some ideas that are in that movie that maybe didn't come across the way he wanted to come across. That happens all the time. Well, I think we need to frame and remember that this was, and it says in that article, this was a pandemic-produced movie. So this is exploration. This is during our downtime when we all, who are of privilege, were locked in our houses dealing with ourselves. And, you know, and that was a big shattering point for a lot of people so this came out of that um you know i just think it's important to note that that this is a pandemic movie and and an exploration but boy am i curious to see it so it I get, wonder. So you're, yeah so you're saying it gets a pass no i'm saying <laughs> <laughs> i'm, being an I'm saying i'm saying we haven't watched it and well uh, that's true we're the assholes because we haven't watched it and we're making but i think it's worth watching yeah. To, to, to kind of make concrete this conversation. Right. Uh, and, and see where everybody's going. Yeah. But I do, I really find it interesting that, that, that Washington signed on and it's getting all, I mean, you know, I guess he was hungry for a part in the pandemic. It seemed like a, a good part and he liked the criticism. I, I'm, I'm excited to see it. I'm really curious. Well, I'm sure there's something there that's really nice. I mean, we, there's lots of movies about couples yelling and screaming at it. I mean, right. it got a so lot good. of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot there to mine as an actor. Like, I get sure. why these actors would want to be involved in that type of, you know, I see. Uh, yeah. scene yeah. work. So I don't blame either of them for... And, and I'm sure... That's the other thing is I'm sure those actors had a say in what these characters are saying. So there's... Mm-hmm. It's not just Sam Levinson. I mean, filmmaking is a collective art form. So there's right. all these people involved. Clearly, we're trying to make something. And, and whatever came out of that is created a totally different conversation that they probably didn't expect. Right. And uh, that's filmmaking. That yep. is what oh, yeah. filmmaking is. So what have we learned today? Don't uh, we? We don't... we've learned that I am the silent Bob of the podcast. <laughs> Sean ain't touching this one with a ten foot pole. That's right. That's what we learned. And we can't we can't be assholes on sets and uh, be really smart about what you're going to make a movie about. 
Um, okay, but there's something I did want to say before we get to Mystery Train. Uh, this is going to be selfish, slightly selfish, Woo-hoo! but I have a bit of personal news. Um, Share it, baby. Yeah. Uh, so I just wanted to announce that Women as Losers is a movie that I cut last year. Uh, it's actually been selected. It's going to play in competition at South by Southwest this year. So, uh, yay. Yeah, it's it's up for grand jury. And, That's amazing. Uh, it's a it's a it's a really cool little film. Uh, it was directed by Lizette Feliciano. Uh, it's a period piece. It takes place in San Francisco. It revolves around a young kind of girl, a young Latina girl at a Catholic school, and she gets pregnant when she's young, when she's still in high school. Uh, you know, has to kind of force herself into the situation where she has to. This is late '60s, so she has to decide if she's going to do an illegal abortion, wow. and. That sounds really heavy, which is not... I feel like this movie is worth checking out just because that that feels super heavy, but there's a lot of levity in the movie. There's a lot of color, a lot of Latin culture, a lot of, you know, the characters will talk directly to the fourth wall. It's super unique. Hmm. Uh, a great score, too, that's very period And we get uh, to see centric. your cutting, which is always freaking great, like truly. So I can't yeah, wait. Yeah, so that I'm excited about. I guess if I, there's, South by Southwest is going to do a virtual... Uh, festival and I, I, I assume it's like the Sundance and, and some of the other festivals uh, you can buy it if you if you're listening to this go think about buying that and if you do and you happen to be at South by Southwest's virtual experience go check out Women as Losers because it's it's a labor of love and I'm really proud of that one I think it's gonna be cool sounds amazing awesome. I can't cool. wait to see it all right that is enough of us talking Mm-hmm. So let's listen to more of us talking <laughs> <laughs> with mystery fucking train, man. You're in for a ride. Okay, You're this is the okay. This is the part of the podcast. I'm gonna edit in the train whistle sound. The choo choo. <laughs> okay, mystery train. Mystery Train. Mystery Train is an anthology film set in Memphis, Tennessee. It revolves around three stories. One, two, three. The first follows Mitsuko and June. They're a couple of uh, rockabilly Japanese teenagers uh, who've made the pilgrimage to Memphis, Tennessee to sightsee their hero, Elvis Presley, Mm -hmm. kind of visit Sun Studios in Graceland. The second story revolves around Louisa. She is an Italian widow who finds herself stuck in Memphis with the body of her dead husband on her way to rome and then final uh story revolves around johnny charlie and will robinson a group of men who uh kind of find themselves holding up a convenience store uh accidentally one night and uh, by the end of the story what we what we really discover is you get this kind of overlapping narrative where you you hear or see one event in one story and then that event will appear in the next story and then by the end we realize that all the narratives are linked together and Mm -hmm. that all the characters are kind of intertwined. Yeah. But wouldn't, that's kind of what the movie is, right? I'm not too far off base. No, that sounds right. That sounds right. No, and, you and I... I knew what? <laughs> Wait, so should we just should we just get it out of the way? Like, I mean, did we all just love the movie? Uh, yeah. Oh, I fucking love it. I mean, I fucking love it. <laughs> I mean, I... Yeah. I think this is my third time. Yeah. I would, I'm, I'm jerking off right now. I love <laughs> it. Uh, zip it up, buddy. Yeah, zip it up. Yeah, but, yeah. um... It's beautiful. I mean, yeah. what can you? Uh, that's, I mean, when you're reading through the, mm-hmm. the descriptions of these three stories, like there's just there's so much in each story that is 
candy throughout you know i it's it, it there's what yeah. he's done with this movie and he's failed in other movies but like there's moments that are just so effing compelling for no reason other than i mean i guess there's tons of reasons it's great writing it's great acting and it's great observational direction and he knows exactly when to move or to stay forever and it's just really beautifully done i mean i can i could say that shit forever it just kept it just keeps doing that i showed you guys my note paper that i wrote it looks like it's very all over the place yeah it's but that's because i was so excited and Mm. i was just writing jotting notes i wrote lines there's so many good lines in this movie but just from the get-go you open up you see this train barreling through you know, towards Memphis, Tennessee. Right. You know, I, I, spoiler alert, Sean and I both grew up an hour away from Memphis, Tennessee. Mm. So I, I grew up, this movie, this movie was shot yeah. in 88, 89. Yeah. I was like, yeah, I was like seven years old, six, yeah. seven years old. So I, I grew up going to Memphis, Tennessee all of the time. So I have, I know Memphis, Tennessee very well. So you open with this train headed into the ta- into the city, and, and, and the way that you the way that you meet the town, the way that they shoot the town, the way that the the soul is like ingrained in that film is so freaking apparent. It's that stuff is so alive. It's just there. It's electric from the very opening shots. I don't know what it what I I said to my I said to like I remember a minute and a half into the movie. It's funny because when we talked about object of desire, Zach, you talked about being checked out right. like a minute and a half in the, a minute and a half into this movie. I said, Whoa, what is going on here? There's <laughs> yeah, something, magic. there's some kind of alchemy here that is just working. I mean, maybe it's, it's the two actors that, uh, who are playing Mitsuko and June. They're amazing. Yeah. The way he shoots the train and them against the Mississippi river outside the window, the way they dress, they're dressed, they're these rockabilly kids, you know, there's just something about it that just grabs me, grabbed me immediately, and it never let go. I I, I think it's everything yeah. working in tandem. And also, may I just talk about mm-hmm. the cinematography by Robbie Mueller that is fucking <laughs> fire, and he shot one of my favorite films mm. of all time, Paris, Texas. But what's crazy is you can see his voice too oh, throughout yeah. it. Like, yeah. especially when we get Mueller's? into the, into, Mueller's oh voice? Yeah. yeah. When you, when you, when oh, Mueller's you, voice is all over this movie. Oh yeah. It's, it's, it's incredible. Uh, especially, but especially when you get to the night scenes and you have the, oh, yeah. the, the, the street lights kind of glowing green. That was, that, mm. that's, that to me just reeks of his style. And I thought it was so beautiful. Yeah. Oh yeah. I I wrote, I wrote down a note here that I wrote. This is this movie is Paris, Texas, with a sense of irony. Wow. Um, and yeah. that to me, that's what it felt like. I mean, if you go back and you listen to Vem Vendors talk about Paris, Texas, and his inspiration for the cinematography of Paris, Texas, huge inspiration was the painter Ed Hopper. Hmm. Um, and mm. y- if you go look at his his work, you see the Paris, Texas cinematography, and you could see it all over this movie too. Yeah. It, yeah. There were scenes you know, that looks straight out of like a Hopper painting. And it's, it's just, I don't know what it is. There's something intangible about the way Robbie Muller puts, where he puts the camera hmm. and the way he frames things. And he just sits there. It doesn't move. Yeah, like yeah. They, there's this recurring shot throughout the movie where they keep cutting to the train going over the overpass at night. Mm-hmm. And there's just, there's like one light illuminating a little industrial building on the left and a road that's going in to nowhere on the horizon. And it's just so evocative. I don't know. It elicits such a, such a, a response without saying anything. And that's to me what I was, when I was talking about the opening and getting hooked immediately, it's, 
it's such a master class in visual storytelling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the opening of this movie doesn't say much at all. Right. I mean, and what it does say, you you really have no grounding for what the characters are doing or where they're going or what's going on. But it's just like, I don't know, man. I, I, this is this is the type of movie I see it, and I'm like, that's what I strive to be as a filmmaker. Well, oh, yeah. I think it's, it's hard. I, yeah. yeah, I think it's a master class in in point of view. And I think that's why Jarmish is who Jarmish is because he's so when you, when you say point of view, what do you mean? Well, I mean, I mean, I mean, Jarmish is uniquely himself and yeah. that is because this guy, you know, listens is, 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 is his self. What he is, what he decides to focus on, what he decides to write and not write is what makes it mm. so damn compelling. It's the simplicity. It's the anti-structure. It's the real fucking life you know, just letting these kids be and then and then brilliant fucking writing about what they're discussing. But, you know, I took a note saying, like, take that Blake Schneider. Like there is, you know, there is no page 12 catalyst. Like it's, yeah. and it's well, so, so, yeah. so beautiful. Yeah. What, what, we should orient the audience who don't know who Blake Snyder is because Blake Snyder, Sean, do you want to talk about Blake Snyder? Have uh, you read Blake? Have yeah. we all read Blake Snyder? Yeah, you you gave me your your copy of Save the Cat. That's right. I gave you. He wrote right. Save the Cat. Do you right. want to tell us what it is, Sean? Uh, from what I remember, it is a uh, a how to uh, book about screenwriting that kind of whittles it down to uh, right. this this device uh, that he calls Save the Cat. Yeah, and it basically is a blueprint for Hollywood cinema. He, that Snyder's works. Famous. That fucking works. You know, that's why we all have it on our our library. I, I would I would say this about about Save the Cat, and then we can jump back into Mystery Train real quick. It's a great foundational read, and if you're a re- screenwriter who's interested in understanding structure, it will it will help orient your brain with structure very very right. succinctly, and it will it will really be a benefit. Right. The thing that you have to do with Blake Snyder and with with save the cat is learn that shit and then forget it. Yeah. And and just learn how to D to D um, program yourself from the Blake Snyder. Because if you get too locked in on the, on the structure thing, then you can never be free as a writer. And this mystery train is the perfect example of freedom in writing. Let's start with, let's talk about the anthology of it. Okay. Mm. So it's a story. It's a movie about three stories, right? It's a triptych. It, it, it's it's not that Jarmusch invented this as a technique in writing, but I do think, wouldn't you guys say that Tarantino kind of made it famous with Pulp Fiction in 90? I mean, oh, yeah. I feel like oh, he yeah. brought this, he, it felt, I was watching this and it felt like, I was watching this thinking, oh, it feels like this is kind of inspirational to Tarantino and Pulp Fiction and like, it's, it's good anthology storytelling because since Pulp Fiction and since Tarantino's made nonlinear storytelling such a, a thing, I see so many people try it and fail so miserably. Yeah, yeah. Um, Tarantino's great at it. When we got to the second chapter and he put Jarmusch put up the second title, I was like, mm. "Oh, it's gonna be, it's gonna be, a, it's gonna be a nonlinear kind of thing." And you sometimes I, I lose, I get so invested in the first sets of characters that I don't want to leave the first sets of characters. And in this, I was like, "Oh, we're going to a different story." And then the minute Louisa came in, I was like hooked. Yeah, I was shout, in it. Shout, I was shouting into, into the payphone. I mean, these, oh these tiny little touches that only—that's what I'm talking about. It's a master class in in point of view, and only somebody who's really particular and paying attention to life in this like you know slow focused way is going to go. You need to shout this entire phone call scene, and and it's that brilliant. Scene- <laughs> That scene is brilliant. And yeah. you know, you know, there's a scene, not to give anything away to the audience, but there is a scene where Louisa in the second story 
is in the airport and she's having to call a relative back home in Italy and she's presumably calling on a, uh, you know, collect on a, on a payphone, And she's shouting at the top of her lungs, <laughs> all the b- normal things you would say to someone saying, Oh, I'm in Memphis. This is what happened to me. I got stuck. My husband is dead. But instead of talking like a normal human being, she is shouting at the top of her voice without the slightest hint of irony on her face. Yeah, it's like beautiful. it's completely normal. And it, I definitely, it, you know, somewhere on the day, Jarmouche was like, you know what? They probably got to take four or five, and they were like, "Why don't you just shout this one as loud as you can?" Or he's a real genius, and it was on the page. You know? I mean, if it was on the page, yeah. then God bless you, Jim yeah. Jarmusch. You're, you're <laughs> on another, another level because it's it is choices like that that really right. do stand out. And this movie is rife with little nuggets. Like, I want to go back and just watch it for Absolutely. all the other little nuggets that are yeah. that are throughout there. But well, it also, I mean, it opens with music, and I've been singing the praises of John Lurie for every episode of this podcast and Lurie yeah. is friends of Jarmouche and what that and what he's doing is like this creepy hypnotic like r- rolling thing that then changes when we get to the final story but it's fucking rad like that music is really something else super I know I have a few friends who really say they can't stand him and I've seen a few films that I'm what? not a fan of and I've seen other I know I've seen I, I, other... guys I, I'm gonna be honest that's how I f- I don't know sure. that I would go so far as to say is that I can't stand him, right. but I've never really been inspired by Jarmusch the way that I have by this film. But I think he's unfairly judged because somebody saw one thing and and you know and through their judgment. Uh, but I guess what I'm trying to get is like Lurie on the music, like he's hiring these individuals who are just coming at it with their guts and it shows and you yeah. feel Muller it you know? yeah. Muller yeah. Too, all yeah. the actors what yeah. i what i loved yeah. about lurie's score the most was i i the first time that uh the japanese couple hear the gunshot there is this particular cue that plays and mm. i remember in that in that moment i thought huh that's kind of a that's kind of an odd choice but it works and then the the in the second story, um, when those ki- when Louisa and Didi hear the gunshot, Lurie plays the same exact cue, and then and then Whoa. of course again the third time. I thought that was brilliant. I didn't yeah. catch it. You realize that it's a motif. Absolutely, yeah. I yeah. thought that that yeah. was incredible. Yeah, and that's one of those overlapping overlapping narrative devices. There's a gunshot in the first story. Yeah, it ends with a gunshot, so you're left wondering what was the gunshot. And and then you realize the gunshot comes back into every story and kind of. When well, that song was always happening during that moment, so that yeah, always and, uh, was our feed that it's going to occur. That was what song was that? That Blue Moon by Elvis Presley, and that was already that was already like a oh I'm going to love this movie anyway because that song is featured <laughs> in two of my other favorite films, Joe versus the Volcano and Desert Hearts, and now it's in another one. <laughs> Uh, it's it, it, no, I, I'm 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 telling you that song is so haunting. I think it's so mm. beautiful. It's it's my f- and I'm not a big Elvis fan, but it is my favorite Elvis song. Can I say about that moment was something that I loved about the Elvis Presley the Blue Moon motif. When when you see the song in the first story pop up, and you see you're going through what what the two Japanese tourists are going through, you're in an emotional state where you're along the ride for their journey. And so you're you're interpreting yeah. the Elvis song through their their emotional state. Then when you see the blue moon pop up again in the second story, you're seeing how a song can b- 
be interpreted by different people emotionally and how mm. we project our feelings onto pop music. Right. It was a really strong moment for me where I was like, yeah. oh my God, it's like, you know, we all, we imprint our feelings onto music. The way we feel yeah, about music yeah. is personal. Yeah. This movie allowed you to tap into a different people feeling different things for the same song and it was so powerful to me. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. And, and if I can just piggyback off that same scene, so before, you know, it's like they're 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 making love on the bed and it's like this incredibly intimate moment. But then in the bedroom with Louisa and Didi, it becomes more humorous. And it's like, oh, yeah. oh mm. do you do you hear these these people are fucking next door? And it's just yeah. it, it's that it's that feeling of, you know, when you're out and about in 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 public and you know, you wonder who is this other person that I that I will never meet, I will never know. And what is their life like, you know? And th- I, I feel like this movie really tapped into that. Yeah, it's I, uh, yeah, Jim's amazing, and he's he's on he's full throttle and open here. And I mean, like, I have a note where you, Sean, where you were just talking about when the Japanese couple make love in bed. There's a moment where you're there's a fixed camera overhead looking down, and the oh, couple's yeah. just sitting there, and then they they turn their backs to each other, they continue talking, and we're with them in this shot. For four minutes, you know, as they're as they're backs to each other conversing, she eventually turns around. He may pay a little attention, but every moment is utterly fascinating and compelling. And it never it, felt like four minutes at right. all to me. He, like, he did it, that. It, he did that throughout this movie. There's so many takes that are six minute so, takes. It's so hard. I look. I it's. I've worked on films where you know yeah. we, you try to do this. And it's 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 so hard to just set the camera yeah. up and make something interesting for four minutes. It's just, and he does it so. Fucking well, a lot well. of times, I mean, I think it has to do with performance, and a lot of us, yeah. and I think Sean can attest to this. We're all these stupid American actors who are fixated on ourselves and achieving what we're supposed to achieve, and we don't know how to just breathe and be there. And yeah. I think Jarmish is such a master in being a man first before some Hollywood storyteller that he's like why don't you just lay there and then they just lay there and we yeah. and that's fucking compelling bingo <laughs> you know no no, no. But, that's it no that's exactly it that's exactly what sets him apart and makes him special is that right. you know m- I-, I feel like most scenes especially in american films if i can if i can say this it, you know are are it, it it's it you can the, the scene bring it bring okay. down america sean here we go bring Do it, it, it <laughs> down uh no i i know it's it's like it's like the the point of the scene has to be something that moves right, the story right, or plot right. forward. Jim right. Jarmusch does J- Jarmusch Jarmusch. I, I don't know. Jarmushy Jarmushy. He what what Jarmusch does is he lets his actors be. He just lets yeah, his actors yeah. be human beings, and because of that, he somehow has figured out a way to make them so comfortable that. These moments where they're just being is more compelling than a lot of these other scenes in films where it's like an actor pretend, you know, you know, pretending to jump to an important moment in this scene to move something forward. And the first way to get that stuff is put it on the page. And that's where so many of us are challenged and rightfully so it's really hard to emulate life on the page simply and because we're told by the schneiders that we need to stick to the fucking program and push the story along and just like we talked about last week with the the song of the sea like you need to propel forward but when you do it at a pace that's wholly your own like that's when you fucking stand out and get five stars you I, know I mean, because i don't know it's unique i want to say that it was at can 
you know, it, it got around and it, it was definitely, it got a lot of critical praise, but um, mm. I, it's never been one of those movies that's been on my radar as like one of the, this, you know, kind of landmark indie movies of the eighties. And mm-hmm. I sure as hell think it should be. Mm-hmm. Jeez. Oh yeah. This deserves, this is the first one that deserves to be on these lists that we're pulling from. Yeah. It's a real masterpiece. Can we say that uh, to me, that is one of, if not the most realistic depictions of drunkenness in any film I've ever Good seen. Man. I'm, Good man. I'm glad you're bringing oh, yeah. it up. Absolutely. I, Holy I kept thinking shit. That I, I felt about, drunk yeah. watching it. Well, are we yeah. talking about Buscemi specifically? What? Oh, yeah. Or yeah, just all sure. of them? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> but like when Buscemi sits in that chair yeah, and so he good. looks over and he's talking to Will Robinson and he, he has this story about, oh, I just realized you're, your name's Will Robinson, like Lost in Space. And he tells him about Lost in Space. I, I swear to God, it is the best oh, yeah. drunk performance I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. It's, and yeah, and it I kept, think... It, I think Buscemi got nominated, by the way, for a, like oh, really? a, some funny. festival for like a Critics Award or something. Oh, for, for this? Like, yeah. For this. Yeah, he yeah. deserved it. He was nominated for something. He's amazing. He's amazing. Man. Dude, the, dude, the yeah. look on his face in the truck immediately after Strummer uh, shoots the guy <laughs> was just like, you oh, would have yeah. sworn that that is someone who just witnessed a murder. He's so fucking good. He's so infuriated. You see the early seeds, too. Like oh, you Fargo? You see hearkening yeah. to Fargo. Yeah. And, Are you and kidding? By the way, uh, Charlie, to me, is the it could have been the origin story for Donnie from The Big yes. Lebowski. I mean, sure. he's, he's yeah. the sidekick yeah. guy who gets kicked around. And uh, spoiler alert, uh, the movie ends the same way for Charlie as it does for Donnie. Okay, yeah. just just a little. But the, but it comes, you know, it's the writing too, Sean. That scene was so good; it had me thinking of like True West drunkenness, yes. Sam Shepard putting yeah. drunkenness on the page. But like that's Jarmish. Uh, Jarmish did write this, did he? I didn't he did. even look. He did. I, I just assumed he did. He did. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he did. So I mean, but but only a freaking brilliant mind will write these lines i mean i took a note on one after 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 they're in that dilapidated room they look up and and steve like brushes the light and then the light bulb the light fixture falls and comes crashing to the ground and then will robinson says damn charlie i'm glad you don't cut my hair i mean who right like (laughs) like you to come up with that is really fucking sharp and then to be able to execute it nobody has that as their instinct unless you're goddamn bright and like yeah, I mean, it's amazing. So, it's amazing. Another aspect of this movie that we we haven't really we're brushing over that you bring up right now is it's fucking it's hilarious. Oh, it's so there's so many mo- moments of this movie that are laugh out loud funny. I wrote down so many lines. I mean, I was gonna talk about the moment where Screaming Jay Hawkins uh, eats the plum. Oh, so he is so funny in this movie. Also, um, Spike Lee's brother, the bellhop, is Spike Lee's oh, brother. Holy oh, holy shit! Wow. Lee. Yeah, Cinque Lee, Cinque Lee. I don't know how to say his name. He but. was so good. That Will Robinson guy. I mean, that's that's pretty damn close to Buscemi. I mean, he's oh, yeah. he's there. Yeah. He they knows are. what he's doing. They are all. But he's just being free. Or like the the introduction back to the writing. We're introduct we're introducing this Will Robinson character as he cooks a marshmallow on the flame of a <laughs> of a of a oven. <laughs> yeah, but it's like, but he he's kind of dancing and he's kind of talking to himself like a street person might. It's just really fucking sharp stuff. I keep saying sharp and bright, but that's this fucking movie. I mean, I just love it. It's packaged in something that is very absurd and ridiculous, yeah. but I promise you beneath the surface, there's a lot going on there that's worth unpacking mm-hmm. and 
Mm-hmm. And I don't know, man. It's 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 up there. I think it's up there. One of my favorite movies of all. I mean, it's yeah. It's, no, it's yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah it's yeah, it's skyrocketed for me. Yeah, up the list. Yeah. Okay. Well, so mm-hmm. I mean, I think clearly we loved this movie. I think we're yeah. you know. I think we've we could have I could probably talk for another hour and a half just. Oh about me too. This oh movie. me too. Me too. It's and we, do we get, maybe we didn't even get to the, the there was this whole and you know I'm sure you guys noticed this too. There's this whole uh, motif of style and people like like uh, the Japanese couple finish having sex and Ju- the first thing that June says to her afterwards is, "Do women think about their hairstyles?" when they're they're having mm. sex. And then there's then and then later in the film, <laughs> Joe Strummer says like out of nowhere to Bashemi's character like, "Hey, I like your shirt." Or like he compliments on his shirt. And then somebody compl- And screaming Jay and, Hawkins yeah, tells yep. it tells the bellhop he needs to go buy a suit yep. from a nice suit yep. from mm-hmm. Style is a yeah. huge motif in this yeah, movie. And then and every character cares about what they look like. And uh and go go watch the movie for the plum bit alone. We'll leave you the, your mystery the there. Plum, the plum the plum bit. bit alone is worth it. Before we go, what I mean just so we have it, what, what, uh, Sean, what if you went on Letterbox? What, what do you what are you gonna give this? What what would you give, Mister? Five stars. Five stars. Five stars. I was hovering between four and a half and five, but after this is exciting talk, five. We're up. It's easy to say. It's easy to say five right now. We're all giving it five right now. But I, I'm <laughs> I'm I'm actually gonna go four and a half. I'm gonna go four okay. and a half. Yeah, I mean. Uh, five would be the rarest of the rare, you know. I don't. Five stars no, is a, no, th- is a that's, lot. For that, me, that's but. fair. I, and I have to be honest. I I am a uh, I give fives. I'm a I'm a I'm a five I give giver. Fives too. Yeah. So I, I'm not a five giver. <laughs> so it. for me, this is a four and a half. This is yeah. a, an exceptional movie and something that I would watch over and over and over again. And it's something that I would come back to, you know, quite a bit. But I don't know that I would put it up there with you know, my top three or four or five movies of all time. That's where the five stars are. For no, me. I no. It's, it's not a, it's not a top tenner for me, but I, but, but it is, it is, it is to me. It's a, it's a fucking nearly perfect. It feels like a flawless film to me at this point. There's, there, mm-hmm. there is not a lot to pick apart yeah. with this movie. I mean, you know, yeah, it's so funny. We haven't really got into anything negative. I was just like flashing back to like tearing things down for just not being interesting, and we've just been praising this thing. This is that hour. good. I mean, it's oh so God. good. It's that good. If you want to feel small as a filmmaker, and you want to feel inadequate, <laughs> go watch Mystery Train because there is nothing wrong with it. That is a wrap uh, on Mystery Train. Uh, you guys should tune in next week because next week's going to be really fun. We're going to be talking about a Robert Redford-directed film, a film that I feel like is horribly underrated or just forgotten about, but that's Quiz Show. We're going to be talking about his his movie, Quiz Show. You guys seen Quiz Show? Ray Fiennes, long- John Turturro, seen it. Yeah, no, a, a, long, a long time ago, so I don't remember it, but I agree with you, John Michael. I think that because it came out, you know, one of the greatest years of American cinema, it gets overshadowed by the films that came out that year, Pulp Fiction, Shawshank Redemption, and even Forrest Gump. Mm. But, yeah. Yeah, good so, point. So, yeah, I forgot yeah, about I, Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that. Uh, and you guys got anything you want to recommend, quick recommendations before we go? Anything you saw this week? Uh, I've been taking my girlfriend through Twin Peaks, and I will always recommend it, for, always and forever. So, Twin oh, Peaks. The original Twin Peaks? The original Twin Peaks, uh, Twin Peaks Firewalk With Me, the film directed by David Lynch, and then uh, the return, the eighteen-part uh, limited series on Showtime. Noise. Uh... A film called Border from 2018. Um, look it up. 
and watch this movie and your chin will be on the desk or on in your lap. This movie's incredible. Uh, it, I don't want to say anything. Well, it's it's from, I, I don't know, they're great actors. What is the country? Um, oh, it's a foreign film. It's a foreign film. It's called Border. I remember seeing the trailer and, and my interest being super peaked. It's amazing. It's yeah, so okay. good. Yep, uh, I'm me. in. I don't even know what I'm I in for. I haven't said a in. word about it. Exactly. Uh, I, I'm going to do a real quick. Uh, I so and I'm going to pump up Slam Dance again because I have the Slam Dance pa- pass and I've been watching sla- Slam Dance movies. But uh, I watched Teenage Emotions and I watched uh, Taipei Suicide Story, uh, two movies that are at Slam Dance and that I think are worth watching. Both of them. And Slam Dance is up till the 25th. Yeah, and it's only 10 bucks. Go get a pass. You can watch movies on Slam Dance uh, at will. It's amazing. Okay, so uh, we're going to be back next week. Until then, you can follow us on Twitter. We're at Pickups Pod. Uh, you can also visit our letterbox if you want to see uh, the list of movies we're checking out and what we've watched, our reviews so far. Uh, Letterboxed, uh, that's L E T T E R B O X, no E. D and we're at pickups podcast all one word or you can email us at pickupspodcast at gmail.com Sean where can they find you uh, instagram.com forward slash Sean Harrison Jones or my preference vimeo.com forward slash Sean Harrison Jones yeah go watch his stuff Jack Jack uh, Shacky Shack Twitter Zach R Sherman Instagram Zachary Ray Sherman I've also made a podcast pickups podcast on instagram so find us there all right i guess that uh that does it for this week we'll pick it up next week guys Hasta mañana. Toot, toot. Chica, 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 chica. Chica, chica.